0: Well, if you'd like to turn to Mark chapter 4, Mark's Gospel chapter 4, if you're using the Church Bibles, it's page 839. We're going to read as we go along, so I'm going to pray now before we start. Father, we have sung together of our wonderful Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would now shine the spotlight on him, and that our hearts and minds would be expanded in our understanding of how wonderful he is. For his name's sake, we ask it. Amen. Awesome. you ever use that word? Maybe you pronounce it "ass." Awesome. I can't say it. Uh, like it is on the films. Um, awesome. It's, a, it's an overused word, isn't it? Um, but sometimes it's the right word to use. I don't know when you last experienced something where one of the words that came into your head to try and describe what the experience was, was awesome. I don't know if you looked at the launch from the space center, the Kennedy Space Center this week of that enormous rocket that's gone to the moon. I presume it's, I don't know if it's there yet. Anyone know? Is it there yet? I have no idea, but it was a, it's 100 meters high, this rocket, which is very high. Imagine, you know, a 100 meter stretch, and you put it up on end vertically. It's an enormous rocket, and it made a lot of noise um, as it took off. It was awesome, and the power was awesome to get that thing however many hundred tons it was, vertically off the ground and up. And as the commentator was telling us, the speed it was now getting up to, you know, after a few seconds, it was up to 100 miles an hour. Then it was up to several hundred. Then it was up to thousands of miles an hour within a couple of minutes. Awesome power. Well, in this next section of Mark, we're going to see in clearer focus the awesome power of Christ. A power shown in two ways in this section, 435 to 520. First, in an awesome revelation, 435 to 41, an awesome revelation. The setting is the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is 200 meters below sea level. It's um, 7 to 10 miles across, depending which way you measure it. It's got hills all around, except on the southern end where the Jordan exits. And sudden violent storms are still common on the lake. The boat Jesus was in at the beginning of the story was probably like the one they found in 1986. Do you remember? That was a very dry year, very hot summer. Some of you old enough. Some of you weren't born, I know. But uh, some of you might remember it was a very hot summer. And the lake dropped in its level and it exposed this boat. Um, And the boat was 27 feet long, 7 feet wide, with open decks at either end. And they did carbon-14 dating on it, and it dated to around 40 AD, would you believe. In other words, just the time of Jesus. So it was probably a boat like this. You can imagine it had room for two rowers on either side, or two oars on either side, maybe four rowers. Well, that's the kind of boat, almost certainly, that Jesus was in at the beginning of the story in Mark 4, 35. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace. Now, the disciples had already seen, as we've seen in Mark, thus far, Jesus' compassion and power, and yet they still wail in verse 38, don't you care? Sure, this was a storm, it seems, ferocious enough to drown them, and yet they knew that he had the power, didn't they? But then again, aren't we so often like that if we're Christians? Life is smooth sailing for a while, and then suddenly a storm hits. And the first thing we do is complain to God that he doesn't seem to really care, does he? No, nothing has changed. And then, of course, in the story, the extraordinary intervention of Jesus, who with mere words commands the wind and the waves to stop, as if they were unruly hecklers at the back. Please, be quiet. And they are. Now, I don't know if you've ever done any sailing in your life. I was brought up on Southampton Water Area, a lot of sailing around there. And I remember learning, in, in terms of learning to sail a dinghy, how you need to watch the water for the, way, uh, for the wind and the signs of the wind on the, on the waves. You can see the roughing of, the, of the, the water. And sometimes if it goes smooth, you can see that there's going to be a lull and the wind's going to drop and you have to make adjustments as a helmsman. Uh, to anticipate that and so some people might the skeptic might say well jesus was just he stood up and he saw that there was a gap in the wind so he just timed it and got it right so it wasn't really a miracle well that's all very well except it doesn't work with the with the waves because how do waves get created they get created by the wind and when the wind stops and drops the waves don't suddenly go flat no they keep rolling and sometimes for hours afterwards how do I know this? My father-in-law was a meteorologist. He explained it to me one day. So it is a stupendous miracle, as if he'd got out a gigantic iron and ironed the sea flat just with one great stroke of the iron. We read it, don't we, in verse 38. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Instantly. Instantly. Jesus' first words to them in verse 40 are, well, it's interesting, isn't it? In our translation, it says, why are you afraid? And then in verse 41, we get the word fear. It's actually two different words. And the first word, why are you so afraid? is really the word which has got the sense of cowardice. Why are you such chickens? You know, why, why did you get so afraid? Especially some of them who are seasoned fishermen on this very lake. And it's not just why were you afraid, but have you... Still no faith. Do you not trust me? I'm with you. It's okay. And it is still Jesus' question to us, if we're Christians, as we travel through life, as we voyage through life, through the storms that hit us, how is our faith? Are we trusting in the Lord Jesus? Peter, who was in that boat, surely, at the time, wrote... Quite a few years later, in his first letter, chapter 5, verse 7, he wrote these words. Cast all your anxieties on him. Why? For he cares for you. So that cry, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Peter learned over the years, yes, the Lord does care, even when the storms hit. So when you're anxious, what do you do with your anxiety? Well, the scriptures are so clear Take your anxiety and cast it on the Lord because he does care for you. But the disciples' reaction was not, yeah, it's a fair question. We should have trusted you. Look at verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? They realized that they were in the presence of the supernatural. And there's nothing like the presence of the supernatural to make the hairs on the back of your head stand on end. It's scary. And yet there was something even more scary as they reflected on this. Because they knew their scriptures. They knew, for example, what we read earlier in Psalm 107, which is uh, about sailors on the sea, Let's just look at it again. Psalm 107, 25. For the Lord commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. That's what wind does to the sea. Then, 28, they, they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, God, he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Who? God because only God can still the storm and flatten the ways of the sea. So there are the disciples who know this, looking at what has just happened before their very eyes. Think, well, who then is this? Only God can do that. And yet this is Jesus. This is the one we've just called the teacher. Teacher, do you not care? This is the one who just a minute or two ago, was asleep on a cushion at the back of the boat, exhausted by a demanding day's work. And he's just done something before our very eyes, which we know that only God can do. So who is he? Well, there's an obvious conclusion, isn't there? But it's hard to draw when you see the humanity of Jesus. Well, it's a moment of awesome revelation. And as we read this testimony, because Mark is recording this for us, what do we make of Jesus? What is your picture of Jesus? How, how big is your picture of Jesus? What size canvas do you paint your picture of Jesus, if you like, in your, in your mind? Because we learn from this that we can never have a picture of Jesus which is too big. We can never be guilty of exaggeration in seeking to describe the greatness and the power of Jesus. And much as we value his humanity because he is human fully, we must never discount or minimize or reduce in any shape or form the fullness of his deity, his divinity, his godness. And so we should rightly fear him and tremble at his presence. But the wonderful thing in Scripture is that this fear goes hand in hand with trust. Or to put it another way, the fear of God is not something when we know God that should drive us from him, but rather draw us to him beautifully put in, in Exodus 14 31 where we read of the reaction of the people to the people of Israel to that extraordinary moment when there was a supernatural deliverance from the Egyptian army do you remember how the God made the the sea part and stand up walled on either side and they walked through the middle of this passageway between the sea which was kept in place by God's supernatural power And it stayed there until the very last of the Israelites had crossed the Red Sea. And then they turned around and looked back and they saw it close in on the Egyptian chariots and destroy them all. They saw it happen with their very eyes. They walked between those walls of water. They experienced it. And what did they say at the end? Or how is it described? Here it is in 1431 of Exodus. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, and look at this lovely phrase, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him. They feared him and they put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. And as we read this account of Jesus' extraordinary power, his awesome power, The same thing should be happening in our hearts and minds. We should be fearing the Lord and putting our trust in him and in Jesus, his servant. Can we just stop for a moment and have a moment of quiet as we consider, are we doing that in response to this? Well, the awesome power of Christ is seen in an awesome revelation of who he is. And then secondly, it is seen in an awesome revolution in 5, 1 to 20. Here is a man with a storm raging not outside him, but inside him. Let's see what happens. Mark 5, 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs. Seems they've landed near a cemetery. A man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion. Now, a legion was a a division of the army in Rome, five or six thousand strong. rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who'd seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who'd been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him and come with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, that's the ten cities region, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Now, it is a terrifying picture. A man possessed by multiple demons, something I doubt any of us have ever seen or will ever see. But it seems that in Jesus' day, the powers of darkness rallied against him. And yet, when they see him, they can't help just answering the disciples' question of who is this? How do they describe him? Crying out, What have you, verse 7? What have you to do with us? Jesus, Son of the Most High God. They know who he is. And they know they're powerless in his presence. Do not torment me, they say. They beg his permission. There's no struggle. Unlike in the films, no convoluted formulae or spells. They just fall down before Jesus. Now, I know that modern sensitivities get upset at 2,000 pigs drowning as collateral damage, especially if you love pork. But note two things, will you? First, the devil is out to destroy. This is surely one of the implications. Don't believe the devil's lies, that that he will bring you life and freedom. If you will just keep God at arm's length, if not right out of your life, then you will be able to be free to live life as it's meant to be lived. Then you can have fun. If you let God tell you what to do, he'll cramp your style. He'll ruin your life. But this teaches us that to live a life that refuses to yield to God is actually an act of self-harm. You're going down the path of destruction. No, the devil is out to destroy. Second thing I think we learn from this is that God's servant Jesus has come to save us from ultimate destruction. And he values a single human life so much that he's willing to pay a price of 2,000 pigs to set an individual free. So this poor, deranged individual is transformed by the intervention of Jesus. And when the locals arrive on the scene in verse 15 and, and saw the man that they had for so long tried to control with shackles and chains, but with zero success, there he is in this wonderful phrase, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. It is a marvelous moment. The awesome power of Christ seen in the awesome revolution of this man's life. And they get a full account in verse 16. These locals who turned up, verse 16, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they replied, isn't that wonderful? We must bring all the deranged and sick in the region and get Jesus to transform them too. We're so thankful to have Jesus come among us. Is that what you read in your Bible? Not at all. Quite the opposite. Look at verse 17. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. What is going on? Why? Well, we're not told explicitly But I wonder if what Mark records at the end of verse 16 is a hint as to the reason. Do you see how he describes it? They described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. Where are the pigs? Maybe that's the reason they wanted Jesus to go away. Maybe their economy. I mean, 2,000 pigs is a lot of pigs. I don't know if you've ever kept pigs. I haven't but it strikes me that 2,000 pigs is an awful lot of pigs. And maybe the whole local economy is now facing ruin because of what Jesus has done. And all the money that was going to be made from these pigs is now gone down the, the plug hole, well, into the lake. And for them, that is far more important than this particular individual being rescued and transformed. It's not entirely clear, but I think that's, there's a good chance it's that. But whatever about that, have you ever seen someone who has been clearly transformed by the power of Christ, changed from darkness to light, from death to life, from a previous life to a new creation? Have you ever seen that? It's one of the lovely things about a baptismal service, isn't it, when we hear the testimony of people and how they came from not knowing Christ, not knowing God to knowing him, having their sins forgiven and their future secured. These are wonderful occasions. I hope we'll have another one in the new year, not too distant future. But at what cost is this transformation? Maybe you're someone who is considering the claims of Christ. That's why you're here. That's why you're listening. But you're finding the cost too high it's too much. You're not prepared to sacrifice the pigs. So sad, isn't it, to see people encountering Christ in the sense of hearing about his saving power, seeing it in lives transformed, and then, in effect, telling Jesus to go, go away, go away, get out of my life. I don't want you in my life. Please don't let that be you. But of course, if you have experienced the saving power of Christ in your life, then how can you stop telling people about what he's done? Okay, the guy doesn't, the, the man who's, who experiences this revolution doesn't end up where he wants to be. He wants to go with Jesus in the boat, but Jesus says, no, stay right where you are. didn't permit him, verse 9, He said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And off he goes. Jesus had a better idea for him. That he, as a Gentile, should stay in that Gentile region. The ten cities region to the east of the Sea of Galilee. And spread the message of God's awesome power through Jesus. And we can certainly see the result at the end of verse 20. And everyone marveled. What about us? Oh, that the Lord would open the eyes of our minds, but also open our mouths to proclaim his praise and not to be ashamed of the name of Jesus. And this recorded by Mark is surely there to encourage us to be like that as we hear of Christ's awesome power seen on the lake in that awesome revelation. It is God among us. Seen in the cemetery, in this awesome revolution, Jesus can transform anyone's life, however messed up it is. He can transform your life. And if he has, don't keep it to yourself. Let's pray.